0: with me to the book of Mark as we um, as you're turning there just a couple things you have last week we shared the 2020 budget with you uh, we also if you missed yesterday that week we sent that an email yesterday and we're going to have a couple deacons in the chapel after the service if you have questions on the budget questions on things that we're doing so we want to give you plenty of opportunity to ask questions and to be engaged in that process so after the service in the chapel will be a meeting uh, for that. Mark chapter 11 is where we are this morning. As we uh, begin, we are, it's Thanksgiving season for us. Uh, that time of year where this week many of you are going to be eating lots of food, giving thanks for all the blessings God's given to us. And as we consider the Thanksgiving season, we recognize that Thanksgiving season comes at a time of harvest. It comes at a time of harvest when those who have planted back in the spring exercise faith in putting seed in the ground. Putting seed in the ground and trusting the Lord to produce this fruit that grew throughout the summer, and now they're going to harvest it. And that connection between seed and harvest is a is a is an illustration we want to look at this morning between uh, faithfulness and fruitfulness. So faith and fruit are the ideas we're going to be looking at this morning. And in Mark chapter eleven, we're going to see this connection. And as we do this this morning, as we work through our PowerPoint and stuff this morning, I just want to thank our uh, guys that work in the back. We have been having all kinds of problems with uh, uh, the TV in the back and the computers and stuff, and they've worked and worked and worked to try to get it all figured out, and we're making progress, but uh, they're doing some workarounds this morning to make things work, so I appreciate the uh, effort they're putting into making this go off without any, too many hiccups this morning. So thank you, guys. Well, Mark chapter 11, let's begin. We're going to begin in verse 1, and uh, we're going to look at these first 25 verses. So let's, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, they came to Bethany. He was hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for the figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And and his disciples heard it. In verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out from the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be, moved, be taken up and moved into the heart of the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, will come to pass, and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be done for you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses let us pray heavenly father we thank you that you are a god who is faithful to us and lord you have demonstrated your faithfulness to us over and over and over again lord with every rising sun every sunrise lord we are reminded of your goodness Lord, with every change of season, from the season of, of wintertime to spring and the summer to the season of harvest, we see your faithfulness. Lord, we see your faithfulness in giving us opportunities to wake up every day, to be able to function in our lives, to be able to enjoy the good blessings that you give to us. You are a faithful God. And this morning, Lord, I pray that your faithfulness, as that rings in our ears, that that would translate into faithfulness on our part. That we would be a a people who are seeking to pursue you with all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. That we would be people who are faithful to you and we bear fruit in response to your work in us. So God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand the truths of this passage and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, My goal this morning as we look at this passage is for us as a church family to be expressing our faith to be expressing our faith in very tangible ways, in four ways that this passage would speak of, that we would express our faith, first of all, in unquestioning obedience, in enthusiastic praise, in proper worship, and powerful prayer. The God would move us to speak and to live by faith. And as we look in this passage in chapter 11, Jesus and His disciples have been making their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. That they are traveling there because it's the Passover season. That all the Jews were to gather in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That the blood of lambs would be shed. That blood would be offered. And that be a reminder the fact that God has rescued Israel from Egypt, brought them out of slavery, made them a great nation. That God has been faithful And as they are traveling up to Jerusalem, uh, we're told about this event that Jesus has put things in place or he tells his disciples what's going to happen. And in verse verse uh, verse 1 through the first part of this, we see Jesus giving some instructions. He gives instructions to his disciples about this colt that nobody's ridden. And he says to them, he tells them, he gives them details about where they're to go, They're supposed to enter into this village It's in front of them, and so they're walking down the road in that village. Jesus says, go to that village. He tells them when they get there what they're going to find. He says, you're going to find a colt there that no one has ever ridden. Not only does he tell them where to go, what they will find, he tells them what to do. When you get there, untie it. And then he tells them what to say. If anybody has any question, if they raise any question, tell them that the Lord has need of it and will bring it back immediately. So Jesus gives them all these instructions that then the disciples, in verse 4, they went away. As they go into the city, what do they find? They find a colt. Where is it? Tied at the door in the street. What did they do? They untied it. What happened in verse 5? Some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said to them, and they let them go. And as we see this event, that Jesus is going to be entering Jerusalem, and he is going to be entering on this colt, but Jesus has laid all this out to again remind his disciples that he is in control of everything. Some scholars would say, well, Jesus may have already had this arranged and he had communicated to these people in this village ahead of time that this is what's going to happen, and so Jesus is letting his disciples know that. And and, and while that that may seem reasonable, it's very unlikely that Mark would record this if that's what happened. It would be unusual that Mark would make a big deal of how this all happened if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was not orchestrating this in terms of a human standpoint, but a divine standpoint that he is putting all of this together and he is telling them, I want you to walk into this town and be faithful. I want you to trust that you're going to find a colt. You're going to find the colt that nobody's ridden. You're going to untie that colt and then if anybody asks, you're going to tell them these, these, these instructions. And so we see the disciples do this, and then Jesus, then disciples bring this cult back to Jesus. And the first thing we recognize in this is that God is using these faithful servants. That's the people God wants to use. Last week, when we were reading through last week, we were earlier at the end of teaching his disciples what true greatness is. And he said true greatness is Service. That we become great in the kingdom of God by serving others. And Jesus calls these disciples to obedience. They obey him, and as a result of their obedience, they honor Jesus as, through that. But it's interesting as we think through this idea of what Jesus called his disciples to. If we look at this closely, it's a pretty uncomfortable set of instructions. Because in the part of it, he says, when you get there, untie the colt. Then if anybody asks you, tell them what you're doing. So it would be like this. It would be like uh, me asking one of you, said, hey, um, this afternoon I want you to go to the Kroger parking lot and there's going to be a blue Honda um, CRX there and uh, the keys are going to be in the glove, in the uh, cup holder. I want you to go there. It's going to be unlocked and you go there and uh, and you just get the keys and you, you just bring that car to me. And by the way, if anybody asks, tell them, hey, Steve needs this car. He'll bring it back in a little bit. Right? You're thinking, no problem, right? I'm going to go there. I'm going to open up this car. I don't know anything about this car. I'm going to go in. I'm going to start it up. And uh, then if anybody asks, I'm supposed to tell them that, hey, Steve has needs of, need of it. And they're thinking, well, that's not how we would, I would do that. It would make sense to instead go and I get to the Kroger parking lot and I look around and some people standing around said, Hey, I'm just getting in this car because Steve said I need it, and so I'm not stealing this car or anything. Um, Just want you to know that before I put the key in the ignition and start driving off. But how did Jesus give the instructions? Untie it, and then, if they ask, tell them. And so he's putting them in an uncomfortable position. An uncomfortable position of obedience. Because what's it look like if, if that's a donkey? You know whose donkey it is. These strangers come into town. They untie it. What are you thinking they're doing with that donkey? Yeah, they're stealing that donkey. Who do you guys think you are? And we recognize Jesus is calling his disciples to faithfulness. He's, listen, he's calling them to a risky obedience. Which is essentially what faith is. Our faith in God is risky obedience. A definition of faith that maybe we could use is this, that faith is believing the Word of God and acting on it, no matter how you feel or what you fear. Because what often keeps us from faith, from living by faith? Our feelings, I don't know about this, or our fears, I'm afraid of what will happen and to understand that faith is believing the Word of God and acting on it, no matter how I feel or what I fear. I'm going to do this, Lord. You've called this to me. And so you've called us to go in, and it's going to look like we're stealing this donkey, but that's what you tell us to do. So we're going to go in, and if we're going to get in trouble for it, we're willing to follow you. It's what you say. And those people, even if we say, hey, the Lord has need of it, what might they say? That's our donkey. You're not taking our donkey. I don't care who has need of it. This is our donkey. But he calls these disciples to a risky obedience. And that we understand that faithfulness, that God calls us to be a faithful people. And faithfulness is expressed in our obedience. That God calls us to obey him, listen, no matter how we feel or what we fear. We're called to obey Him. God calls us to obey Him in the little things and big things. From, from untying a donkey in the Bible we just read about to walking through the Red Sea in the Old Testament. When God calls us to faithfulness, it doesn't matter if it's little things or big things. Our call is to trust Him. Am I going to trust Him and follow Him? We think about that in our current lives. God's commands to us to speak the truth in love. That's risky obedience, right? Husbands, your wife is um, being a little over the top on something, and um, you realize, man, this isn't good. And uh, you're kind of tempted, or you realize, I should probably say something. (laughs) You're laughing, (laughs) Because the point is being made. What is it? Because the husband speaking truth in that context is risky obedience. Because God says, speak the truth in love. I speak the truth in love in this situation. What might happen? They don't want to hear it. Right? That's risky obedience. Speaking the truth in love. Listening to listening to somebody speak the truth in love is also a demonstration of risky obedience. Somebody correcting us, telling us something that we don't want to hear or something we may not agree with, but it's truth that our risky obedience is willingness to hear them and to apply what they say. Because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We would look in our culture, we think about, um, we heard some, some good juicy news about a situation and we're like, man, this is too good to keep to myself. And you have no business talking to anybody else about it because it really doesn't involve you, the other person, it doesn't involve them. But, but you've got this great news that you want to say. What does faith do? Faith says, I'm not going to gossip. I'm going to do what God calls me to, and I'm going to keep this matter quiet because it doesn't, it's not going to do anybody any good for me to share this with others. Even if I couch it in terms of a prayer request oh, by the way, hey, I want you to pray for such and such. And you're masking that as gossip. We realize it's risky obedience. Risky obedience, trusting God, living a, a sexually pure life. In our realm, that we recognize it to to for someone to be committed to God's truth and it becomes a sexual ethic and realize I'm gonna trust God in this rather than my own desires or what the world would say or wisdom and I don't compromise. When it comes to relationships, trusting God for these relationships and not my own wisdom. And they think, well, if if I trust God for these relationships, what if I don't get any? What if people don't like me? What if I don't have the relationship that I want? Well, what's the alternative? To not walk by faith. To walk in disobedience and bear the fruit of that disobedience rather than the fruit of faithfulness. And so God calls us. He calls us and He wants to use us as faithful servants. And as faithful servants, we demonstrate our faithfulness through obedience. That's how we see it. Faith without works is dead. We shared a few weeks ago, faith without faithfulness is dead. Faith looks like faithfulness. Well... Jesus, then they bring the colt back, and in verse seven, Jesus, they throw their cloaks on it, Jesus sits on it, and then verse eight, it goes on, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the field. So the people see that Jesus is coming in and, and they're, they're, they're greeting Jesus as a king, as a king who rides into this town, and they're saying they're shouting, "Hosanna," which means, "Save now, save us!" Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And as, these, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, these people are understanding what Zechariah chapter 9 teaches. Keep your place here and turn back to, with me in your Bible to the book of Zechariah chapter 9. Now, if you're using a pew Bible, I'll give you the page number in just a moment. Um, Zechariah chapter 9. This is the next to the last book of the Old Testament. Okay, next, to look, next to the last book of the Old Testament. This is on page 797 in your pew Bible. Zechariah 9. We'll give you a minute to get there. These minor prophets are hard to navigate our way through because they're really short and we don't spend as much time in these books as we do others. But Zechariah chapter 9 and in Zechariah, in this book of Zechariah, the, 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 the prophet is longing for the Messiah. He is wanting the Messiah to come. And he's longing for them. And in chapter 9, and this is several hundred years before Jesus comes, Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem, behold, Your king is coming to you. Ooh, good news. Our king's coming. How's he coming? Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as they're seeing Jesus, this guy who's been teaching with authority, who's been casting out demons, opening blind eyes, healing the sick, declaring that He is the Messiah, as they're seeing Him coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, their Old Testament sensibilities are thinking, wait a minute, we've read something about this. This, Jesus, is in, He's the King, he is this king that Zechariah talked about. He is righteous and he has with him, he has salvation. And as he has salvation and he's coming in, so they're, they're laying out these, these palm branches and they're laying down their cloaks and they're doing all of this. And then they're saying what? What did they say? The people came? Hosanna! Hosanna! And back in chapter, if we would look, we won't look there, but in Psalm 118 it says this, Save now, which is Hosanna. Save now, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, give us success, we pray. Save now. So they're watching this king come in, and they're greeting him as a king, and they're praising him as the Messiah. They're praising him as the Messiah because in verse 9 and 10, it says in verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Promises that God made to David that his offspring would sit on a throne that would last forever. An eternal king. They're saying this Jesus who is riding in, he is the king, he's the Messiah, he is the one. And they sing that with great hope. Because they are fired up that Jesus has come. And as they are expressing their faithfulness, they express their faithfulness with praise. They're rejoicing that He has come. And they're right. They're right. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to save them. But they're off just a little bit because their expectation is that Jesus is going to come and He is going to save them from the oppression of the Romans. That he is going to come and rescue them from these Roman authorities who have authority, who exercise control over the Jewish people and, and they don't like it. And so their desire is that they would be set free, that the bondage from this enemy of the Romans would be cast off. And yet they're wrong about that at this point. Because they're expecting Jesus to be this king who's going to conquer and drive out the Romans because they see their biggest problem is that they are oppressed by these people. Their biggest problems are these outward challenges. But Jesus hasn't come to address those outward challenges. He's come to address our greatest problem. He's come to address the greatest problem and that is our hearts. That our hearts are our biggest problem. And Jesus has come to free them from slavery to their sin and to themselves. As we understand that, that's something that it's important for us to get our heads around. Because it's real easy to think that my biggest problems are all these things outside of me. My biggest problem is my finances. My biggest problem is this person that doesn't like me. My biggest problem is my work. My biggest problem is what happened to me when I was a kid. My biggest problem is I don't have the relationship that I wanted. My biggest problem is these, these, this temptation that's out there. All of these things, these are my biggest problems. And we think our biggest problems are out there. And if we just look inside of us, we'll find a solution to help us. The Bible turns that completely around The Bible tells us that our greatest problem is inside of us. Our greatest problem is our hearts. Because our hearts have been captured by improper loves. That our hearts are captured by all these other things that we love. We love comfort, we love security, we love peace, we love ease, we, we, we love praise, we love prominence, we love power, we love all of these other things, we love to be able to just do our own things, and we love all of these things, and because we love all these things, we're pursuing the things that will meet, meet those needs. And we, re, we're wrong. we think that, that if I just would have these things, if all these outward things would just get in the right order, then my life would be good. But that's, we don't see that at all. We don't see that in the Bible, and frankly we don't see it in our everyday lives. I mean, how many of you have an experience of you're chasing something, chasing something, you think, if I have that, that's going to make me happy, and then you get it. And you're happy for a little while. You're happy till it gets old, or you're happy till you realize, well, this really hasn't met my need. I mean, Christmas is coming, and a lot of you have stuff on your Christmas list, and maybe it's the iPhone 11 Pro, and I want the brand new phone, and if I have the iPhone 11 Pro, I'm going to be satisfied. Until what? Yeah, about next June, whenever they come out with the 12, whatever, right? And then you think, man, i got this old stinking piece of equipment. I can't use this one anymore. Right? We think about that if I just had if if our family meal, if we just had this family meal and and everybody came and got along, and so everybody comes and they get along, and you're like, Well, that was nice. But it's over. I mean we have these longings in our heart that we think if the right pieces happen, right relationship, right finances, right things, right job, all that, then it's great. But the Bible teaches us that's not it. Because our problems are not out there. Our problems are our hearts. That we love the wrong things. And Jesus has come to transform that. It's the beauty of the Gospel that Jesus has come to meet our greatest need. He has come to die on the cross and raise from the dead, certainly to free us from our sins and to give us eternal life, but He has died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us something better to love than ourselves. He has come and He's died on the cross risen from the dead so that we would love Him first and most and increasingly that we would love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and understanding that He has taken my greatest problems. He's transforming my heart. How can I not love Him? And because I love Him, that love is translated into faithfulness. And because I love Him, because I want to be faithful to Him, that I walk in obedience to Him. Because I love Him more than I love me because of what He has done, because I love Him, because I'm faithful to Him, that I will praise Him, that I will sing praises and rejoice in what He's done for me. And so Jesus rides into town, and He's riding in as a king, a king who is pursuing our hearts to free us from the bondage of our love for ourselves and our sin to love Him. Well, as He enters Jerusalem, then in chapter verse 11, He continues and He says, And He entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. So he goes to the place of worship. And it says, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus goes into the temple, takes a look around, evaluates the situation, and they head out of town. The next morning they get up. Verse 12 says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, okay, which again, the picture of Jesus' Jesus's humanity, right? He's hungry. He was a man like us. It says, And when they came to Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for the figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, if we're just reading through Mark, we're thinking, That's weird right? So, I mean, he's going in and out of Jerusalem, he's hungry, and there's a tree that has leaves on it, so it looks like it should have, should have figs on it, should have something to eat on it, early season, it's not the season for it, but it's got leaves on it, so this tree is basically tree saying, I've got fruit. And so Jesus is like, okay, i am gonna go check that out. And he goes there, he gets it, there's no fruit, and so he curses it. And we'd read that, and we're like, that's a random story because then you read on and it's talking about Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, drives out. That, like, that's weird. But then we get down to verse 20. So let's look at 20. So the next day they leave the city and then they're coming back again. In verse 20 it says, as they pass by in the morning, okay, so 24 hours have gone by since uh, verse 15, 14. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Jesus had cursed it the day before. It is dried up. I mean, this is better than Roundup, 24-hour stuff. I mean, it's dried up all the way to the roots. Okay? And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Now, let's, why, what's Mark doing here? As he's writing his gospel, why does he why does he? What's he doing here? Well, let's think about this. And Mark does this in a couple of places: that he begins a narrative, interrupts it with something else, and then finishes it. So here, they walk in it. They're walking into town. Jesus curses the tree, and then the issue of Jesus casting out the people from the temple, and uh, then we see the tree's dead. And what's going on here is Mark. I would say that what's Mark doing? He's making a truth sandwich. Right? A true sandwich. And our two pieces of bread are the fig tree, Jesus curses it, and the fig tree withered. Right? So this fig tree that should have fruit, it doesn't. Jesus curses it, and then it's all dried up. So what's he teaching? Well, the question is, what's in the middle of this? Right? Well, So what do we see? We see this in our outline, that Jesus is rejecting this barren tree. He expects fruit. Why does he expect fruit? Because the fruit should be there. I mean, if it's got leaves, it's saying the tree's saying, Hey, I've got some fruit. They didn't have any fruit. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the fruitless trees. So, in verse 15, let's look at the meat of our sandwich. Okay, in verse 15, we have the meat of our sandwich here. And it says this: And they came to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone anything, to carry anything through the temple. And so this Jesus walks in and the temple the temple courts, that's where the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews could come and they could worship. They couldn't go in the temple, but they could worship in that area. They could come there, but they've turned it into a marketplace. I mean, you've got animals in there. You've got people t- exchanging money and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is outraged by this. He's outraged by this. And he turns over these, temp- these tables and he says in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, that they had corrupted this worship. They had corrupted the worship of Jesus. That they were to be faithful to God in this temple area and in all of life. But they had turned faithfulness to God into profit for themselves. They're thinking, how can we make a buck here? How can we satisfy ourselves in the midst of all of this? And Jesus is driving them out. And as He drives them out, He's rebuking their faithlessness. And so as we see in the tree, what's this true sandwich look like? That Jesus is rebe- re- rejects a barren tree. What's he expect? He expects there to be fruit on that tree because it has leaves. But what happens? He rebukes it and he rejects it. In a similar way that we see Jesus rejecting, that, that Jesus rejecting barren ministry. What's going on in Jerusalem? Jerusalem had all the leaves that says there ought to be fruit here. It's got the temple, it's got the priesthood, it's got the worship, it has all that. And so Jesus expects faithfulness. He expects faithfulness because of all the outward signs, and yet what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes their faithlessness. They're a faithless people. That They have all the outward signs that they're religious and they're doing fine, but there's no fruit, just like the tree as we read in that passage, it should startle us a little bit as we would examine ourselves and to ask ourselves, what does God think about His temple today? His temple today, as believers, the temple is us as individual Christians. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The church is this temple of God, that the presence of God dwells here, if He would come to visit, is He finding us faithful? Or does He find us like the people in the temple, they're just made it all about themselves. Yeah, they're, they're going to worship, they're going to the place where they're supposed to be, but it's all about them. Making money and making connections and making shortcuts through the courtyard Think about in our own lives and in your life, are you faithful? If Jesus shows up, he opens the door in the courtyard, and he opens up the door to your heart, and as he looks and he begins to examine the different parts of your life, your relationships, how you're handling conflict, how you're working, how you're handling your finances, how you're using your time, as he would do an inventory, as he would look around, what would he do? What do you think? This is what this place is to be. This is a place of prayer. This heart honors me with their faithfulness. Or there's some stuff that he might start kicking out and saying, this has got to go. This is not demonstrating faithfulness at all. This is fruitless, and I'm rejecting this. And He kicks these things out. And I would ask you to examine your own heart this morning and your temple to recognize Jesus rejects barren ministry. And I think one of the most startling statements in Scripture about the rejection of fruitless ministry is found in Matthew 7. Listen to what it says. It's Matthew seven twenty two and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we have plenty of leaves on our trees that would look like faithfulness? Didn't we have all these outward forms of worship? Did not we have all of these things? And I will declare to them, it says in verse 23, Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? There was this outward evidence of faithfulness, but there was no inner faithfulness. Startling for us to examine ourselves and open the doors of our heart and to be saying, Am I faithful? Faith without faithfulness is dead. Is my faith alive or is it dead? Well, is Jesus then. Finishes this evidence. We see in verse 18 the chief priests and the scribes, they don't like this. They heard that and they were seeking a way to destroy him. They want to destroy Jesus because he's speaking truth, he's challenging them on what they're saying. And, but, the, but they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The next day they come in. They see the withered fig tree. Its roots are withered all the way to the ground. Jesus saying, here's your true sandwich. I cursed it. It demonstrated it. looked like it had faith, but it had none. It's cursed all the way to the roots. It's not going to bear fruit again. And then he says in verse 22, Peter says to him, man, look at this. And in verse 22, and Jesus answered, have faith in God. That's the key to this whole passage. Have faith. Faith in God. If I have faith in God, I'm going to be faithful. Have faith in God. What kind of fruit does faithfulness bear? He goes on to say, faithfulness bears this kind of fruit. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says, it will come to pass, and it will be done for him. You have faith, it can move mountains. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if anyone has anything against you, uh, against anyone, as the Father also has, that the Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What I want to see in this passage is that Jesus, that God answers faithful prayers. As we hear this truth, God answering these faithful prayers, that faithful prayers express confidence in God's power. Listen, can God throw a mountain into the sea? God absolutely can. God can do absolutely anything because He's a creator of everything. He is powerful to do anything. And faithful prayers express confidence in God's power. I wonder sometimes, do our prayers demonstrate confidence in God's power? Or are our prayers just limited to what we kind of think would be just kind of a little better normal stuff? I mean, do we believe that God can do supernatural things? That He can do things far more beyond all that we can ask or imagine? That's the kind of faith that we need to have, that God can do this. And as Jesus is teaching this truth, He is demonstrating to us that, that he, is, he is saying to us, Ask for anything and it will be yours. We read in other passages of Scripture that there are some conditions on prayer, and we understand that. And so what we see is Jesus, in many ways, He's unbalancing this truth to reveal something to us. We see this, that that, that Jesus is teaching us that faithful prayers demonstrate a submission to God's will. See, There's a part of this that says, Well, I can ask for anything, and if I believe and don't doubt, God will give it to me. And there, there are people that would teach that is exactly what it means, and if you're, if you're not asking, if God's not giving it to you, you don't have enough faith. I would just make the argument this way I would say this God doesn't give you everything you ask for in prayer. And here's the example I'd use He didn't with Jesus. What did Jesus say? Father, take this cup from me. That's what He wanted. And did the Father take the cup from him? No. Why not? Because Jesus was living in submission to the Father. And so our powerful prayers need to be in submission to the will of the Father. That we would recognize that we're going to ask God, throw that mountain into the heart of the sea, God. That's what I want from you. But Lord, I'm also recognizing that your wisdom is far greater than mine. And if that mountain being thrown into the sea is not going to be the best thing for me and for others, then God, you know that. But you're telling me to ask, and I believe this. I believe you can do this. What's hindering this is not my doubt, but what's going to hinder it is the fact that you know better. And His will, he, we're not, so we submit to Him. We trust God's power, we trust God's wisdom, and we trust His goodness. But we've got to trust His wisdom. He knows what's best. And so faithful prayers express confidence in God's power. Faithful prayers demonstrate submission to God's will. But faithful prayers also reflect the forgiveness that comes by grace. And in the last part of this passage, he is talking about our prayers being tied to forgiveness. And essentially, the idea is this that we demonstrate our faith by walking in obedience. And one area of obedience is offering forgiveness to others. That requires a lot of faith, especially if you've been really wronged by someone. Because God's saying, forgive. Forgive how? As He has forgiven us. You say, well, they don't deserve to be forgiven. And God would say, you didn't either. But that's what grace does. And so that we would have an attitude of humility and submission to God. And that those, because those who are forgiven, we forgive. And we are saying, whenever we're willing to forgive others, we're saying, God, I want you to treat me the way that I'm going to treat others. And that's how we see that condition at the end of that passage. And so this morning, we recognize that faith and fruit go together. That just as this Thanksgiving season, that the planting of a seed in the springtime produces fruit, that we realize that that seed is planted in faith, and that faith produces fruit. Whenever we walk in obedience to God, we say, God, I'm going to trust You. I'm going to take You at Your Word, no, no matter what I, what I feel, Or what I fear, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust you to produce the fruit of faith, the fruit of uh, of love and joy and peace and patience, the fruit of knowing that I'm, I'm going to hear your well done, my good and faithful servant, that we humbly walk in faith. And I would ask you this morning do you have faith? Do you have faith in the Son of God who has come to take away our sins, to bring us to heaven, and to transform our lives today? And if you're saying, I do have that faith, the next question would be, Are you being faithful? What's the evidence of the faith that you profess that you have? Is the evidence obedience? The evidence of praise? the evidence of a confidence in God and who He is and a boldness to ask Him for for big things that seem supernatural that only He could accomplish? How is your faith working? Is your faith producing faithfulness? And I want to encourage you this morning to examine your heart, to ask God to open the doors of your heart, to be able to see your own heart. And am is the faith that I profess with my lips, is that being lived out in my heart? And ask God to reveal that to you. And what we find, that we would rejoice in the good things we find, we would repent of the things we don't, and we would continue then to turn and trust Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, You have called us to humbly trust You. Lord, to trust You regardless of how we feel, to trust You regardless of what we fear. That God, I pray that You would translate faith into faithfulness into every one of our hearts, into every corner of our lives. And Lord, as we sing this morning, that, that we would ask You to, God, take our lives. That You would take our lives and that we would entrust them fully to You. And as we head into this holiday season, that that we would see faithfulness being lived out in the conversations and the way that we relate to family members and others, the manner in which we give you praise for your goodness to us. God, take our lives. Lord, use us. Help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.